Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 19. We're going to read two whole verses this morning. John 19, we're going to pick up verse 28 through 30. John 19, verses 28 through 30. As you're turning, these are Jesus' last words in his state of humiliation. And I find them to be three of the most comforting words in the Bible. It is finished. There is a sense of closure, of rest, found in those three words. For you know, I know, we don't get to say those words very often, do we? I've bought an old house. There will never be a time in my life when I am finished working on it. We talked about being made worthy. There's never a sense in which we will be done in this life. But look at how we are as a culture. We make devices that are to make our lives easier, but they increase our anxiety. They take away our rest. We distract ourselves with play and pleasure, but then we spend all of our time with the upkeep. We surround ourselves with voices of approval, and yet we lay down at night and we wonder what people think of us. Nothing seems finished. So let's just ask a question this morning. How does those three words... How does Jesus' finished work bring us rest? Let's pray and we'll answer that question. Heavenly Father, your word is our sure foundation, the only foundation of which we have. Men may lie and cheat and steal from us, but you are always faithful and your word is always true. Would you grant us your spirit that we may place our two feet upon your word and find stability and rest for our souls. Father, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Chapter 19, verse 28. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there and said they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. What would you call your life's work? What would you call your life's work? Is it raising a family? Is it retiring in a life of ease? Is it accomplishing some great feat of which you are remembered? What is it? John Steinbeck wrote, 
Man wants to leave some record of himself to prove that he really existed. He leaves his proof on wood and stones and on the living, on the lives of other people. We have a great desire to leave a mark. We do it in all these various ways. However, how do we know that our life work is finished? Well, the answer depends on how we define our life's work. Scripture does not say our life's work is to raise a family, to retire in ease, to accomplish some great thing. Scripture summarizes all of those under the umbrella of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. That is our life's work. That is why we are created. So at the end of time, when God calls us to His judgment throne, when He asks about our work, about that one assignment revealed in Scripture and guided by His providence, He's going to ask... Did you finish your work? And until we can answer that question, we will have no rest. Jesus, we know from Hebrews, entered into a perfect rest. He entered into rest because he had finished his work. What was his work? How does it provide us rest? Let's talk about the work. First, Jesus finished his Father's plan. In John 17, 4, Jesus prays, Father, I glorified you on earth, accomplishing the work you gave me to do. In John 10, Jesus says, I have authority to lay down my life, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. And we know throughout John, Jesus says, I do what my Father says. I say what my Father says. He's finishing a work. Now where did this charge, where did this work, where did this plan come from? Jesus is finishing a work plan from before the creation of the world. It is what Theologians like to call the covenant of redemption. What is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement between two parties with certain obligations and promises. We see the same thing in a marriage. The father and the son made an agreement that the son would save sinners and that he would receive a promised provision and reward. The Father's love conceived the covenant of redemption. For Paul says, in love, he predestined us as sons before the foundation of the world. Love is the ignition that set the wheels of redemption in motion. In love, the Father chose for himself a people from the fallen sons of Adam. Love is that most free and powerful affection. He loved us. But for that love to take effect, for Him to love us, warts and all, it requires something. His justice must be satisfied. 
Sin must be punished. The warts must be removed. Something's got to happen. The covenant of redemption was conceived by the Father's love, but it was completed by the Son's sacrifice. We see that the Son willingly, voluntarily agreed to the covenant of redemption and its deep obligation. We know there is one God, but He exists in three persons. Each of those persons accomplishes the one will to save in their own way. The Father elects, the Son accomplishes salvation, the Spirit applies that salvation to those people. To accomplish that salvation, Jesus would have to pick up our slack and to pay our consequences. The justice must be satisfied, the sin must be punished, the work must be finished if we are to have rest. Jesus knew, and he knew the cost that would require, and he agreed to it anyway. He agreed to it anyway. That's why Peter will call Jesus the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world. Because when the son said he would do it, it was as good as done. Zechariah refers to this covenant as a council of peace, for it would provide peace between God and man. It would provide rest. Now why do we start Jesus' work in eternity? Why do we start His work before the foundation of the world? Well, Dr. Oberman once said this, The doctrine of predestination is the most revealing indicator of one's understanding of salvation. What's he saying? If it didn't begin with God's free grace, it doesn't depend on God's free grace. What we're seeing play out in the life of Jesus is a plan that was concocted in eternity. We are seeing the love of God clothed in flesh to do the things He promised to do for us. He finishes in time what He planned in eternity. Jesus finishes the Father's plan. He also finishes our salvation. We call this a covenant of grace. It's grace because Jesus does it for us. That He gives us His perfect standing and His perfect suffering, His perfect standing and His perfect suffering for us. We see it summarized in His last words, don't we? It is finished. I want to point out something on these very three brief words. Jesus says, it is finished. He does not say, we finished it. Jesus did not need our help. In fact, He's only here because we couldn't get ourselves out of the mess we made. Salvation is a one-man job. Either Jesus does it 
or we do it. Period. His righteousness, His person, His work is one piece. It's not composite. It's not compounded. It's not composed of parts. It is a simple piece. If it was 99% Jesus and 1% MJ, it would break down. If it was 1% us, that 1% would wear out, break down, and fail, and it would unravel all of his work into a worthless heap. We do not contribute our works. We cannot improve perfection. If we could improve it, it wouldn't be perfect, would it? The law demands perfection. If Christ is to satisfy the law for us, it must be perfect. We do not contribute our faith. Faith itself is only a gift used for receiving. To say that our faith contributes to our salvation is to say that holding an empty cup relieves our thirst. Faith is simply the instrument whereby we receive the work of Christ, not something whereby we add to the work of Christ. We do not contribute our repentance, for repentance too is a gift. Bernard of Clairvaux once said, you may sooner find a man who has kept his his innocence You might as well find a man that has never sinned. Then you will find a man who has bemoaned his sin with meat repentance. An ocean of tears cannot wash away a single sin, nor can it make Christ's work more effective. Let me make it clear. When he said it is finished, he means he finished it. He fulfilled all righteousness. Not some, not most, not like Lysol that kills 99.9% of germs. He fulfilled all. He died once for sin, period. By his death, he put away sin once and for all. Old churches... They like to put plaques on everything. There's plaques on that pew. I don't even think that person ever went here. I think they were a member at that Baptist church where these pews came from. We put plaques on everything. I did a funeral at Hines Independent Methodist on Friday, and there was a plaque on the flag stand of all things. There was a plaque on everything. Why? Because we want people to know we have contributed to this work. But when I look at the cross, I only see one plaque. Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. Zach's name's not on it. Monty's name's not on it. MJ's name's not on it. Philip's name is not on it. He finished, not we finished. But notice the last word. He says, it is finished, not it has begun. It is finished, not it has begun. 
There is a line of thinking as old as the hills that says Christ, that it, it negates the work of Jesus Christ. And it does it in different ways. One way is it says, well, Christ wiped the slate clean and he put us back in the garden and now it's up to you to get the rest of the way. Our psalm will say, Christ died to give everyone a chance to go to heaven. Wrong. Wrong. Do you see the problem with both of those? Jesus didn't actually save anyone. He just gave people the possibility of being saved. He didn't accomplish anything. He didn't finish anything. In John 17, Jesus prays, Father, I desire they to be with me where I am to see my glory. But yet on the cross, he's only going to get us halfway. Does that make any sense to anyone? Does it make any sense for this to be the longing of his heart? And to only get us halfway. There's a story of a czar in Russia who was fond of a young man that was his friend's son. Nick, Tsar Nicholas gave this, this young boy a fine position in the army. He was responsible for all the money and finances of a particular division. And the young man did well. But as time went on, he became a gambler. He gambled away his fortune. And then he started borrowing money from the treasury, a little here and a little there. He gambled their money away a few dollars at a time. But then he heard that there would be an audit on the books the next day. And in a panic, he went to the safe and he found the ledger and he tallied up how much he would owe. And it was astronomical. And on the side of the ledger, he took out a pen and he wrote, A great debt. Who can pay? Not willing to go through the shame of being caught, he grabbed his revolver and set it on the table and pledged to shoot himself at midnight. While the young man fell asleep. Now Nicholas Czar, or Czar Nicholas, had a habit of dressing in the uniforms of his soldiers and touring these divisions at night. And he happened to tour the division of this young man and he saw the light on in the room and he walked in and he found the young man asleep with the revolver and he saw the note on the table, a great debt, who can pay? And his first impulse was to arrest the man but instead, he was overwhelmed with pity. And he grabbed the pen and he wrote one word and he quietly left. A few hours later, the young boy wakes up and he grabs his revolver and he looks down at his note and it says, A great debt, who can pay? And then under it is written the one word, Nicholas. The young man was flabbergasted. He ran to the safe to see if it was true, and in the safe was a note hand-signed by Tsar Nicholas himself. And it dawned on him 
Nicholas knew what he had done. He knew his guilt, but he had undertaken the man's debt, and the man would not die. The man trusted Nicholas's word, and he was saved. Tell me something. Would this man had been comforted if only half the debt had been paid? If his debt was as big as the national deficit of the United States and the czar paid 99% of it, would he have peace? Would it have removed the shame? Peace came because the debt was wiped away. Jesus saw our guilt and he took it upon himself. All of it. He assumed the debt. He fulfilled the obligation. All of it. When he said, it is finished, he did not mean, I have finished making a possibility. He said, I have finished. It is finished the debt of my people that my Father has given to me. Their debt is paid. It's finished. Do you know what this means for us? I can summarize it in one word. Rest. Rest. We rest in His finished Word. I want to say a million things about this today. There's so much to say. I want to say one. And I want it to stick very clearly. Resting in Christ's finished work applies to who we are as individuals. We could say it applies to our identity. Identity is today's buzzword, isn't it? You hear it on every news station. To have an identity is to be acknowledged by others. Now, as much as we like to talk about self-esteem and self-expression, we desperately long to be approved by others. You know that one kid that wants to dress in all black and to be, so he can be different from everyone else? Do you know who that one kid hangs out with? A bunch of other kids that look just like himself. We can talk about self-esteem all day, but at the end of the day, we want affirmation. We want to hear a voice outside of us speak a word of approval. Parents need people to dote on their children so they know they're good parents. We need others to praise our accomplishments and our labor so we have value. We spend our old age telling memories over and over so we can hear that affirmation again. The LGBTQ movement is nothing but a group of people longing for affirmation. We are dealing with innate desires bred into the bones of all of Adam's children. But tell me something. Our identities and our children, what happens when they move away? Our identity is in our work. What happens when we can no longer perform? Our identities and our memories, what happens when we can no longer remember? 
Are we less of a person? When the world will not affirm our sinful desires, what do we do? Are we really the, the sum total of our memories? The sum total of our performance? The sum total of our credit score? The sum total of everyone else's voice of approval? When Jesus Christ returns and thundering and roaring and peals of thunder roll out of heaven, will all of those voices, all of those memories, all of those accolades silence the voice of God? It will not. Here is the secret of resting in Jesus. We cannot enjoy something unless we can enjoy it securely. Our memories are not secure. Our performance is not secure. But what could be more secure than Jesus Christ? His work is finished. We identify with Him. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we say, I stand with Him. I'm united to Him. His righteousness is an alien righteousness. It's outside of us. It's outside of us. So His work is finished. His Father approves. When by faith we take hold of Jesus Christ, His righteousness is given to us. His Father approves us. Our, our righteousness does not rest in the quality of our work. It's a hit or miss. Nor in the quality of our parenting. It's a hit or miss. Nor in the quality of our memory. It's hit or miss. It depends solely on Jesus Christ. With Him, everything is done. We compare a covenant to a marriage, such as our relationship to Jesus Christ. There were four daughters. One married a king. One married a businessman. One married a farmer. One married a drunkard. What made the difference between these four girls? Who they are married to. Who they identify with. You can identify with your parenting, with your work ethic, with your memories, with whatever accolades you want to put out there, or you can identify with Jesus Christ. When you identify with Him, when you place your faith and your trust in Him, Satan can accuse us. We appeal to His finished work. Our conscience can accuse us. We appeal to His finished work. The law can condemn us. We appeal to His finished work. Herman Bovink says, The forgiveness of sins, the hope of the future, the certainty of salvation does not depend on our degree of holiness or anything else we achieved in this life. It is firmly rooted in the grace of God and the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. There's no hidden fees. There's no penalties. There's no back taxes. Everything is finished. 
So I want to close with one last question. Have you ever come home from a long day of work and you lay your head down at night and you say, I feel like I forgot something? That's a horrible feeling, isn't it? You think about it all night. Is that the feeling, that feeling of something being left undone? Is that how we want to end our day? Not just today, but the days of our life. To, lay, to be laid into the grave with that sinking feeling. Something's not yet done. When we get to heaven, God's going to ask us, did you finish the work I gave you to do? There's only two answers. No, I didn't. Or yes, Jesus did for me. Which one's it going to be? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that Jesus Christ does all the things that we should, but we would not. I'm thankful for his finished work that puts us in a right relationship with you, that we may enjoy all the blessings of communion with the triune God, the newness of heart, the clearness of sight, the faith, hope, and love which will carry us through eternity. Father, we cast aside, like Paul says, we cast all things aside as rubbish. We are nothing if we are not in Christ. So we cling to him this day. We say these and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing one.